Hi there, I'm Emma Kiesling. And I'm Sydney Allen. And this is Uncovering Publishing, the UCL Publishing Podcast. Today we have a really exciting guest. She was actually one of our keynote speakers at the Future Book Conference this year. Uh, and her speech about audiobooks and the publishing industry was just so captivating that we had to have her on. Kelly Fairbrother is the CEO and co-founder of the audiobook platform ZigZag. Before starting ZigZag with Mark Chaplin, she came from tech as the COO of Gelato Print on Demand. Kelly has a background in the U.S. military as an Army captain. She graduated from West Point and went on to get her MBA from Harvard University. We had a really great discussion with Kelly about audiobooks, thinking like a consumer, and the relationship between tech and publishing. Stay tuned to the end for a special ZigZag discount code that could help you with your own Christmas shopping. All right, well, we'll just dive right in. So, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today on Uncovering Publishing. Uh, we actually, for all the listeners, initially were introduced to Kelly through Future Books uh, Conference, where she was the keynote speaker, and she had a very compelling and eye-opening speech about publishing in the audiobook industry with an amazing call to action that just made us have to ask her to come on the show. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And then I'll just dive in. Yeah, I'll just dive right in. Um, So we have our four icebreakers that we like to do. The first one is very relevant because it's Christmas time right now. (laughs) And that is, what is your favorite book to give as a gift? Well, I think my favorite book for the last few years has been Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez, which I know is a kind of old one, but it's a a good staple. And I think I gave it to my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, basically all the women in my life um, suffered my gifts. For them. <laughs> uh, but this year, I think I'm really interested in um, the story of art without men, which is uh, just this gorgeous picture book. And uh, it's got great examples of artists that we've never heard about. Um, and I, yeah, highly recommend. And a beautiful book. I've seen all kinds of tables with it on like in like Waterstones and Hatchers and everything. Yes, I actually added that to my Christmas list as a book that I wanted. It as looks well. really good. Hint, 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 hint. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> awesome. And then uh, this one's interesting because you are an audiobook platform, but in a different vein. What is one book you would like to see on the screen? Oh, that is a great one. Uh, and I, I think I missed this one in the icebreaker, so I, I don't have a, a ready answer for you. Um, I, I'm listening to Invisible Child right now, which okay. is a really interesting documentary of a homeless family in New York City. And I'll, I'll find the author for you. And I just was thinking to myself, wow, you know, this with all the backstory, it would be really fascinating. It's by Andrea Elliott. And uh, with all the backstory of, you know, the kind of perpetuation of poverty, uh, the challenges of that of a system, you know, I was just thinking, oh, if you could make this into television or film, it would be really compelling. I mean, it would be hard to tell, but it's it's really such a, an interesting story and, and a little bit heartbreaking so far, but I'm hoping there's a happy ending. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, that's great. Um, so our next one, I think, is interesting, just getting to know you a little bit in general. Um, and that is, what is your favorite media that's not a book? So maybe it's like a TV show you really like or a movie. I really like watching basketball, NBA. It could be an artist, <laughs> music, you know? Right, yeah. Be, yeah. No, we, I did catch this one. So we're, we watched one episode of Tokyo Vice and I'm <laughs> so obsessed with it. So it's a T, I think it's a TV show. 
um, I don't know if it was originally, if it's a BBC, because we, we just found it on the BBC, or if it was actually a Japanese production that is, because it's all, a lot of it is in Japanese, but it's so good oh. and it's super exciting. And um, I'm really loving that at the moment. So can't wait to to watch more of it. I haven't heard of that one. I haven't either. Yeah. Sounds good though. <laughs> yeah, it's like, a, a, I think he's an American from Kansas or something. And he goes over and he wants to learn to be a journalist. So he learns Japanese uh, takes all the exams and becomes you know, the first kind of uh, you know non-Japanese journalist in Japan, and uh, it's it's just it's and then he's and then he doesn't stop with the rules of Tokyo, and there are a bunch of rules about what they can report and what they can't report, and he just really pushes the boundaries with a kind of Western lens and this idea that he doesn't need to necessarily fit in because he's not from there. So it's it's super it's just fascinating. That's so interesting in the context of I just spent two years in Korea and I did a lot of stuff with the AAJA, which is like their journalist association um, and people there. And there's a really interesting tension between bilingual or English speaking journalists there and Korean speaking journalists and what they want to report and sort of what crosses those boundaries. It's, a, it's very interesting. Yeah, that's exactly the story. So it and, mm-hmm. and and then it gets into kind of like crime noir, which you know I think is quite addictive, uh, unfortunately. But yeah. <laughs> uh, and then another one, which I think is great because you have the audiobook platform. So maybe we can even say an X book. But what yeah. comp would immediately make you bid on a new X book or book in general? <laughs> yeah, I mean we we. I said, you know, we, we don't do commissioning at the moment. So, but I, we, we're trying to get into it. And basically, you know, my aspiration is just to fill all the gaps in the audiobook list. You know, only a only a minority of books are getting made into audio. Uh, and I think that's it's changing, but it still feels very, um, you know, minority. And there's this whole backlist that's missing. And I think for a lot of people, they're just not reading if they're not getting it in audio, and uh, or you know, they're not enjoying the book, which is unfortunate. But the one, you know, I just thought that a complete cop-out answer here was Harry Potter <laughs> because it really was such an interesting book. And, it, you know, the the language of it, the plots, the, the, the complexity. So I thought to myself, oh, you know, if, if you could find something that is like that, the richness of the of the text, um, I just think that would be, you know, it would just be phenomenal. But I also think it's like it's really hard to do because what what she did was just genius and and it's it's just really hard to replicate I think but that would be my you know very easy sort of go-to yeah well it's funny I was reading um the booksellers audio charts for this past week or the the issue that just came out and all of the rising ones for children's audiobooks it was all of the Harry Potters are on the rise again and I think it's kind of a Christmas a Christmassy it's book, a at least Christmas the movies always give. struck me as it Christmas books. It does Christmas feel books. kind of Christmassy. Hmm. I mean, I'm surprised that it hasn't been tried more to replicate what Harry Potter did. Yeah. You don't see many things even being compared to Harry Potter. I mean, you have The Magicians, which was considered like the grown-up Harry Potter, but I didn't I didn't like it as <laughs> I don't like it as much, and it was older, but I think it's interesting that it hasn't really been tried again. Or it's no. just really difficult, you know. I just, or think just that that hard. One, as soon as you compare yourself to it, right? You're you're completely dissatisfied. Yeah. It's almost like it's too good. Yeah. So I think that's always going to be the problem. But yeah, I agree. I, you know, my kids 
we're huge Harry Potter fans and trying to feed their, you know, their reading habit is actually expensive and, uh, <laughs> and trying to find things that they, that keep them engaged is, is not, it's not easy. So totally. Absolutely. All right. So let's get into the main body of the podcast. The first question we always like to ask is how you got into publishing. And we know that your path was a little bit um, unusual. I don't know if you can, I, you probably consider yourself in publishing, but how did you get into <laughs> Actually, it? What was your that, journey here? Yeah, yeah. That, that is like one of the first things I thought about. It's like, am I in publishing? You know, <laughs> we're not producing yet. We're not. So, so I feel like one, I'm, I do still feel like a bit of an outsider. And I think, you know, the ability to get on the future book stage, I just, you know, the question I was asking is like, why am I here? You know, like, I don't yeah. necessarily feel like I'm a, uh, uh, the greatest representative, but I, but I suppose I came into publishing as a consumer. So the thing that the reason why we started Zigzag was because I was completely dissatisfied with the audiobook experience. I had listened to audiobooks in the late '90s, not to date myself too much, but I was living in Germany. There was no English language content. There were no global content platforms. It was my only form of English language entertainment, and and I just got into it, and then I moved back to the states and. Uh, and, you know, the internet happened, you know, I just stopped reading. I, I basically stopped reading and listening, I would say, for some time, always having a book on the go, but not really able to enjoy it because it was quite, you know, life gets quite busy. And then I came back to to both reading when I had my kids, and then I, I came back to audiobooks when I worked at my last job, which was a really intense startup. It was actually print technology. And the founder would regularly say, hey, read this book and come back to me in two weeks' time and tell me everything you think about it. And it was just super intense. And this, so the only way to survive and not was, was going back, was, was listening. And, and that was like the secret of the, of the organization. And I came back to audios. Ah. I was like... <laughs> Sorry. My, <it's> Sorry, <laughs> that's her dog. Dog saw fox. <laughs> yeah, so I came back to audio, um, yeah, in 2018. So almost, you know, 20 years later, and to me, it just felt like the experience hadn't moved on at all. That, you know, that all the limitations of the format, I mean, I love audiobooks. They help you finish more books. It's brilliant to hear an author tell you their story or, and the, the narrators are amazing and you can do other things while you're listening. I mean, you know, the way to enjoy books in a busy life is, is audio. But at the same time, it was like, well, why can't I see the illustrations? Why can't I look up words I don't understand? Why do I have to give all my money to Jeff Bezos? What, you know, th these were the questions <laughs> that I was just really unhappy with as, a, as an audiobook consumer. And then I just had the opportunity to do something about it. So my co-founder is uh, just a genius, uh, you know, among the best in the world at digital media tech. And I just said, hey, and we had both left the company together and said, hey, oh, wow. are you up for this? Like, this sounds like we could you know, there's a, a market need here, certainly for me. Like, could we just build this for me, please? <laughs> and uh, yeah. and he had it as well, and his daughters had it. And so we just started to get a bit of momentum around the idea. But yeah, that's, that's a sorry, huge... a very long answer, but that was how we <laughs> No, that's a that's a great answer. It's it's a huge risk leaving, deciding to leave the company. And, and well, did it feel like a big risk at the time? I think I'd, I've been like working on trying to find the idea that was going to allow me to start my own company for some time. So, uh, okay. and this was the first one that I got the least amount of pushback from my husband on. So I was, like, <laughs> I was ready. I was ready. <laughs> well, 
that kind of answered our next question as well as the gaps that you saw in the industry and how zigzag kind of came out of that. Can you talk a little bit about the X book for anybody that might not be familiar because it's just the integrated format is so innovative. Um, we actually downloaded one ourselves because we were so excited in preparation and okay. it's really amazing. Uh, so if you could just kind of let everybody know what the X book is in comparison to a traditional audiobook. Yeah. So uh, as I said before, you know, the challenge with a traditional audiobook is it feels like an incomplete experience. If the author intended for you to be able to understand the book, then, you know, in some ways you should be able to see the text structure and the dialogue structure, because that sometimes informs your comprehension of a book. And the same thing around the illustrations, you know, you've commissioned artists to build these beautiful things. Why does an audiobook listener miss out on them? You know, and it was just, it's really obvious to me. And I, you know, so yeah, and I'm a huge audiobook fan. So, and I, I always feel like, you know, so the history of art without men was listening to it. And it's just like, oh my God, this needs to be an X book. <laughs> I need to see. I'm sure there was like so much cool art in that too. Yes, oh exactly. Gosh. Yeah. And it's like, it would yeah. really make this a richer experience. And so, yeah, so we take uh, audiobooks, uh, human voice narrated, because we, we try to avoid, um, we, well, we think synthetic voice is actually not good enough yet. So we take human voice narrated content and we index it to the ebook. So it's like an audiobook with the ebook behind it. And then that's great because most of the time, you know, we're, we're audiobook focused. But so as you're listening, you know, if there's something you don't understand, you can flip to the text and you can look up the word or, or you can just see it and then keep listening. And, you know, for us, it's all about, well, I think when we started out, it was all about just efficiency of reading but not missing out on anything. And I, because I'm a huge, like, um, I look up words I don't understand. You know, I'm always trying yeah. to improve my vocabulary. And so for me, it was just, you know, the inability to, if, you, if you've heard a word that you actually can't spell, you know, there's almost no recourse as an audiobook listener to figure out what the word was or what the author meant. And that just feels like a missed opportunity. So yeah, we take the two formats together and then that just unlocks a really cool set of features. So you can, um, you can take notes so you can save a quote and then the transcript pops up and then you could share that on social media. Uh, you can, as I said, you can search in the audiobook. So if you've lost your place or if you've been listening and there was a concept or a character that was introduced early on, you can just, you know, do a search and actually all the context you need is there. And so you don't have to go back and listen again. You can just see and then keep going. So it is kind of about efficiency. And then once we started, it was also really interesting that, you know, people who struggle with traditional reading also felt really underserved in the same way that we did. So we, we heard from the visually impaired community and they pushed us to make our product better for their, for their needs. We heard from moms with kids with special education needs and, and, you know, wow, this is the first time my child has been able to uh, read a book independently. And because that, you know, typically parents have to be, you know, they're sat next to the child reading to them or they're not getting enough out of the text. And, and so this idea that you can combine these two formats, you make it super efficient for those people who are proficient readers, and actually you make it a far more accessible experience for, you know, for, for kids that struggle, or anyone that struggles for that matter. Yeah, I'm totally obsessed. I think there's so many different things that having the ebook, but sort of like an augmented ebook can do. I remember uh, when I was younger, we used to do all these cross-country drives with my dad, and he played the entire Temeraire series, which is like the Napoleonic Wars with dragons. And they would describe <laughs> all of these dragons 
And I'd be like, I would love to see the illustrations of this. And there are illustrations of these dragons in the books and I could never see them. And it always made me angry. And then the other thing is, you know, I also love audiobooks. I listen to so many of them. And I, a lot of times when I'm listening, I hear a quote and I want to use it. I want to like share, I want to like save it. And I have no way I'll like write down the timing and I have to like type out what I, it's, it's a mess. (laughs) So I think it's, it's really helpful for that. And, um, and all kinds of people, like you said, it's, there's so many different uses for it. The other relating it to accessibility, um, and, you know, uh, reasons that people would gravitate towards this. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your pricing model, which you talked a bit about at Future Book uh, with the idea of the more you purchase, the less your books cost, encouraging people to like binge buy and to read as much as they can and to not penalize people for reading more. I'm I'm going to go ahead and like the the Audible system is that you get one, I think one credit per month which I had for a while and which was super frustrating because I read more than one audiobook a month and then you're just having to pay on top of that. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you came up with that pricing model um, and why you think it works the best. Yeah, so I think I said it um, (laughs) at Futurebook that uh, a a quota-based pricing system is the worst way to sell books. And I felt exactly your frustration, which is why am I limited to one book a month? Why am I penalized? when I would like to, I would like to consume more, uh, but you make it so difficult for me to consume more. And, and actually, I think we've come to believe that that's a little bit intentional, that there's a bit of protectionism going on. That is, we've got really big stakes in print books and eBooks. So we're gonna make it look like it's a really generous offer, but actually it's really demand constraining. Like that, that's kind of my view of that pricing model. And so as a consumer, I was just trying to think about, well, what would, make me, you know, what, what do I think is fair? And I think the challenge is that they have set a price in the market that is the price at which, you know, people consider an audiobook a fair price, obviously, because people are willing to pay it on a monthly basis, um, even with, when they don't have time to listen sometimes. <laughs> that was the other <laughs> downside of that pricing model for me was, yeah, uh, you know, I, I could use these three, and uh, but it just feels like you're just always working on that next one. And, and so I found that really frustrating. So yeah, our pricing model starts at $7.99. After five books, your price goes to $6.99. After the next five books, you go, it goes to $5.99 and so on and so on until you're, if you're buying 20 books a year or more, you're, you're paying $3.99. And that, you know, we came up with it from a variety of ways. Like one, we just knew that we weren't going to do a quota-based system. The second is that the publishers have some constraints that we had to work within because, um, yeah, that they don't make everything easy, I'd say. Uh, so we had to adapt to those. And then we were trying to kind of benchmark it against, well, what can you get in other places? So so we looked really hard at, you know, the if you look at, like, for example, uh, Audible have like a 10999 price point, which is you can buy 24 books and you get all that flexibility, but you have to pay all that money up front. And so we were just trying to find a price point at which we could, you know, that it it seemed intuitive. You could, you've got to explain it to consumers and it's not that easy. You know, the pricing also resets annually. So I'd still say it's probably not perfect. And it's something we can, that I suspect will evolve over time. Um, But, you know, right now it's sort of working for us. People seem to like it. 
and it does, yeah, it really encourages binge behavior. So we had, we, you know, we, we see people going and consuming 25 books in 90 days. And, uh, and it's really fun to see that because we're like, oh, there he goes again. He's got one more. And, you know, there's this <laughs> idea of, um, uh, you know, binge enablement is, is the term that we use. And, you know, if, you, if, if a person was on a one per month quota, that, that consumption pattern would take them two and a half years. And it just feels like, is that really what the publishing industry wants? You know, people going through books, you know, over, over the course of two and a half years. So, yeah, I think we, we you know, we think there's opportunity. Um, people seem to like it. You know, people don't like it when it resets every year, but we're, <laughs> we're also trying to figure that out. So. On, sorry, I, I just want to sneak in. You mentioned that the, the publishing industry is bringing some constraints to the table with that. And I, I don't know how much you can say about it, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what parameters what you're working within with the publishers that you work with in the publishing industry. Yeah, so I guess it's a, a variety of um, exclusivity with certain massive players, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and exclusivity for particular uh, business models. So we that was that was one constraint. A lack of support from some publishers for an all-you-can-eat model, which I think is what consumers would like. Although I, I think, in our view, an all-you-can-eat model um, is also not great value. I think you get all the same constraints of a of a you know a one per month. Um, especially when they start giving you quotas about how much you can consume. So that you know, I don't think it's a, a panacea either. But yeah, so those I'd say those are the two main ones that we were adapting to. Um, and yeah, it's just like, okay, throw us a challenge. We're gonna figure it out <laughs> and we're gonna move on. So that that was, I think, how we how we got to get to our pricing, really. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on the topic of exclusivity, I actually found that really interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's pretty rare in the publishing industry to have exclusivity for a title. Um, and I was doing a little bit more research on that. And it goes so far as to, with the Audible exclusivity model, um, those books as audiobooks can't even be in libraries or a lot of independent bookstores. So it's it's very restrictive, more so than almost, I'd say, any other type of Very unique. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, Can exactly. you talk a little and, bit about how rare that is? And maybe is there a reason that it's happening in audiobooks and not really anywhere else? Yeah. Uh, I think the entire publishing industry is set up to hold audiobooks back. <laughs> like, I think <laughs> if we were being really honest about it, um, mm-hmm. because it's such an easy format, people love it, and it's really easy to consume books, but they really worry about um, cannibalizing sales of print. And, and print is God in this industry and, you know, for good or bad. And I, you know, we, we point out in our, in our future book talk that, you know, print books are one of the more wasteful product life cycles of any consumer industry. And nobody is talking about that. So, you know, for us, it's, you know, we're using this to raise awareness because we're trying to change an industry that is trying to hold back one of its most exciting formats from, you know, from absolutely flying. And the reason for that is possibly because they get less money on per, per title and they think about it at a per title basis, even though the market would be massive and bigger than mm-hmm. probably anything that they can think of today. And so, yeah, we just, just, you know, it's a conservative industry people don't get um, promoted for taking risks in any way. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I suppose that's kind of what, what you well, know, our observation of it. Yeah. To relate that to, there was a Spotify rep that was also at Future Book who was talking about 
the fact that the market for audiobooks is so much bigger than the market for print books and that, you know, maybe even instead of cannibalizing the market for print books, you'll have people who already listen to podcasts or even just music realizing how easy it is to consume audiobooks. Then you have all of these new readers. I call people who listen to audiobooks read it. I call it reading, you know. <laughs> I do too. But yeah. I think it's super snobby when when people are really pedantic. Honestly. About it. <laughs> um and then you have all of these new readers. Do you think it would cannibalize print or because I mean everyone said that about ebooks when ebooks were first becoming a thing and then print really just sort of stayed the same. So do you think it would c- cut into the market for print books or do you think it would just expand? Um I I think it would expand by enough so that mm-hmm. they wouldn't even notice it was cannibalizing. Like th- that is my view yeah. because mm-hmm. I do think if the, if you think about the full potential and I think the you know that that's right. Like there's a, if you think about the global market for content, it's 300 billion and the globe, the global market for books as a portion of that is a hundred billion. So there's an audience that's two X as big out there yeah. that you could use, you know, that you could market to for these books that would more than offset any cannibalization you were going to experience, but you've got to think big. And, and the problem is, is they, I just think there's not a lot of big thinking going on. Yeah. All right. So you come from mostly tech instead of publishing. I'm wondering how that transition from doing, I I guess you said you did a lot of uh, print tech, but how is the transition from working in tech to dealing with publishers all the time? It's a weird industry. Any interesting stories about that transition? How has it been for you? (laughs) That's going to turn into a therapy session. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So the first um, contract we signed, I won't say who it was with. Um, <laughs> I, it was basically a kind of take it or leave it kind of contract. And at the time, I didn't have any advisor. You know, it was just Mark and me, and we were just starting out. Uh, and then I brought George Walkley on board, and he's an amazing guy. He, you know, is formerly of Hachette, and he uh, is my publishing Sherpa, I would say. He just <laughs> sort of solves everything for me on the publishing side. And he also helps translate. He helps us you know, build our proposition to to meet the needs of publishers as much as we need meet the needs of consumers. So he's been really important to us. And uh, and he looked through that first contract and he actually had me in tears. Like, oh, uh, no. this, this, here's all the things that you should never have signed up to. And I just uh, said, you know, it was a take it or leave it. Like I was taking it. We had no other content. Like we were taking it. Yeah. Um, but it was it's this funny story that we share now as a sense of, you know, like how, uh, in small and insignificant we were when we were starting out so that I think that's a great little publishing anecdote but you know I just think it's that it's really surprising as an industry how and I think people experience this you know maybe um, from your side when you're trying to get jobs and when you're trying to get something published you know this persistence of not responding on emails or not responding in what I would consider to be a polite and timely manner uh, and we all suffer from it. You know, I get hit all the time with, um, you know, cold emails from people trying to sell stuff to zigzag. So I have a bit of sympathy for it. But uh, yeah, no, it's, the, it's one of the just the most interesting things I've ever experienced is like, wow, they they just don't respond. Like, okay, I'm just not going <laughs> to respond. That's wild. And they even, just ignore. Yeah, yeah, they just ignore. And so, and, wow. and actually, when I mentioned this and I joked around about it at Feature Book, the number of startups that came up to me afterwards kind of saying like, thank you for calling that out. So it's it's definitely <laughs> a thing and it's a, you know, a peculiar characteristic of 
of uh, of the of the industry, um, and one that I don't think reflects particularly well on it. If I would say, I actually it was funny because we were timekeeping obviously for the that keynote speech, and I remember <laughs> when you started to make the comments about the emails, we both looked at each other like, "Oh my gosh, she's going for it!" Very spicy. <laughs> we were like, "That's awesome." <laughs> Philip told me to make it spicy. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, so on that topic of, you know, tech to publishing, um, you mentioned that you all were not commissioning yet. Is that something that you're interested in doing in the future, kind of a move from more of a tech-based platform in publishing to being a publisher as well yourself? Yes, absolutely. We just think there are so many gaps in the market in terms of what's mm -hmm. being produced. And as I said, you know, there's a backlist I would love to get to. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just seems like a natural progression for us. So it's on George's list of things to do or to think <laughs> about at least in 2023. So I don't know, you know, we might not get there, but you know, at least we'll be, we're starting to think about it, starting to plan for it. We feel like we have a bit more capacity to do that. You know, from the anecdote that you were talking about the first contract you ever signed, I think it speaks really highly of the company and what it's doing that it's gotten this far, this quickly, you know what I mean? And that audio is growing so much despite all of the things that are against it. So <laughs> Thanks, really yeah, wild. And I do promise you in our classes, it's funny, I was sitting next to a girl the other day and we're coming together with business plans and dissertation topics. And one girl goes, oh, look at this zigzag pricing model. And I was like, oh my goodness, we're <laughs> actually gonna be speaking with the CEO next week. Yeah. So it's getting talk spoken about and- yeah. Definitely making waves in our own little independent master's program as well. So awesome. That's really exciting. Yeah. We I, I've not really seen Zigzag in the wild yet. So that, that I feel like that would be like when you meet a stranger and they actually recognize your brand, like that, that will be a kind of big milestone for me. I think the day you see someone on the tube with an X book open on their phone. <laughs> exactly. Any one of those things would be very good for my company. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of want to circle back. This is this is backtracking a little bit um, to talk about pricing models and stuff. But there's been a lot of drama um, with in-app payments with Apple. This is like a very specific thing. But I'm just wondering if you have any insight or any issues with in-app payments because I'm pretty sure I pay for my Xbox through the app. Apple Pay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. through Apple Pay. Yeah, um, so we've got plenty of issues with in-app payments. Uh, we oh, we think uh, that we should be able to choose who our payment provider is. Um, and regardless of how you come to our app, whether it's on the App Store or the, the Play Store, um, and that it's, it's, one, it's not good enough. Like, it, it's just not a specialized payments platform. So we see, like, maybe 1% of payments failing you know, customers find it confusing to have to come to our app and then go out of our app to then log in, to then come back to our app to purchase on that first purchase, which is always a little bit painful. There are not enough payment solutions. So people want to use PayPal and they're not allowed to use PayPal in these things. So, you know, we, 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 and we saw, you know, I think Spotify's US launch, you know, they're trying to, mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that, that they, they really prohibit in the app stores is what's known as um, wayfinding. So signaling to people that there are other ways to purchase, which also doesn't seem very customer centric, right? Like if, if somebody no, wants right. to purchase on a website and we've heard that, you know, again, we've heard this from our customers. So they don't necessarily want to have to set up a payment method with Google or Apple. They don't, they want more payment methods like, mm -hmm. um, you know, PayPal is a good example. Uh, and, 
yeah, and, and they just find it, you know, they want a simpler process. So, you know, all, and then we pay, you know, 15 to 30% commissions, which is so far out of the market. I mean, if we were on yeah, strike, that's we'd wild. be paying wow. like four and a half percent. So it's egregious. Um, the government are looking at it. We've been speaking yeah. to the Digital Markets Unit and the Competition Markets Authority, the CMA, and um, and trying to help them understand, you know, the the issues for small businesses like us, because yeah, it's just it doesn't really feel fair. And then when Apple, I don't know if you, you follow, we follow this quite closely because you know the yeah. the, the Fortnite battle in the U.S. and then there was a mm-hmm. dating app in the Netherlands, <laughs> yeah. and even after the Netherlands told the app stores they couldn't prohibit the dating apps from using a different payment method apple came back and said oh well that's fine but we're going to charge you a 27 percent audit fee on all your transactions it's like oh my god i mean these these this is not in the customer interest and and you know no and as much as apple and google try to claim it is it's it's pretty appalling and and it's just greedy behavior and you know we're, yeah. we're a b corp we think um you know, uh, businesses should be working together with their partners, not trying to extract maximum value out of them. And I think this is a great example of, of you know, capitalism gone amok, and like <laughs> let's extract as much value out of out of the consumer and out of these partners as we possibly can, and just. Uh, and it's so just we're, so we're obviously not, harmful. Fans. Like if I'm trying to if I'm trying to buy it, it's just so obviously not the easy thing. Doesn't make sense for anybody. Ugh. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah. Sorry, you got me started there. Another thing. Yeah, no, you're <laughs> Amazing. Well, um, one thing that is big on this podcast in particular is just kind of bringing in the different sectors of publishing because there's so much out there and we felt that a lot of people want to go into, you know, editorial and marketing. And those are fantastic positions, but there is so there are so many sectors, so many moving parts of this industry, like this audiobook platform. So we were just curious, um, when you're looking for an employee, what kind of qualities might you look for that differ from a traditional publisher? And, you know, just where's your head at when you're looking for, you know, the next generation of employees? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is tech skills. And I think this is where I think the publishing industry is really missing out at the moment, based on, you know, our experience working with them. Um, you know, technology, and I, I think I said this in the future book speech as well, but, you know, technology isn't going away. It's only going to get more mm-hmm. important. So having, um, you know, students or graduates who are really confident in technology, even just like the basic, I mean, it, you don't have to be, <laughs> you don't have to be a coder yourself to understand the basics of technology. And so my, ch- I would challenge anyone who's going, um, you know, for a publishing degree to, to actually try to balance that out a little bit you know there's and I and I appreciate it's people who have you know are much more kind of language skills and interested in the humanities but the world is is going digital and that you know the more you can prepare yourself um with the technology skills just you know to be able to speak technology to understand basics about um you know how computers work how coding works how literal coding is and you know we, we struggle all the time with um with uh, publisher metadata and it's it's really straightforward if you understand how computers work. You, you would you would never not do it properly if you understood how com- computers work. But the the challenge with the industry is it's still very analog, and so as a result, we're in this like transition where we seem to be the 
I don't know, the gatekeepers of how to do metadata properly. And we're like complete outsiders, like we're not qualified. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, um, it's a standard that nobody adheres to and, or, or that's not true. I think there are some great companies, some companies that do it really well, but it's just a little bit of a wild west. And so I would say, you know, figure this out because, it, you know, if you, th there are other opportunities. If you can be better at these things than others, then you just have a broader perspective on the world and you can, you know, you'll make better decisions as a business. Um, yeah, that, sorry, that's my view. Well, and, yeah. and to speak to that, I was at a um, event for SYP, the Society of Young Publishers, uh, I want to say weeks ago at this point, but um, I met a really nice guy named Chris Liu and he works for the eBooks department in Penguin. And he was talking about how there's so many new jobs that are being created because of publishing that haven't existed before that require a combination of some fluency with technology and coding, because especially with eBooks and I'm sure with Xbooks and stuff, there's a lot of nitty gritty there. And then also understanding how you want it to look and, and stuff like that. So to your point, I think there's also a lot of new jobs that are being created around it that maybe people aren't super aware of. Yeah, I think production and ebooks too kind of pulled mm -hmm. in that new, more tech-focused crowd. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I think somebody needs to solve for the publishing industry is how, how ebooks are built today because it is really old HTML and, and it's kind of limited to the print layout of the book, unbelievably. And so yeah. just think about how much better books could be. And, and again, it's this, you know, I'd say this neglect of digital formats by an industry that is very analog still, but there's this real potential to make that an exceptional experience. And we, we might get to it at, at zigzag, we, or we might, you know, hope that somebody else solves it first, <laughs> you know, it's in our, it's in our thinking around how do you make this a just richer and more like easier experience also for, um, for publishers so that you don't have to have tech skills to do a layout and to make it really look beautiful. And, and to, you know, you don't need HTML because there's a ton of like no code solutions out there. So that's mm -hmm. kind of, you know, how we think about it. Yeah. Um, I think that's all the questions that we have for our main section. Did you have anything else? Yes. Well, I was just so curious. We were reading your biography, um, and <laughs> saw that you were, <laughs> started reading, uh, when you were an army officer in Bosnia. Um, yeah. and it just, it just sounded so interesting. This doesn't, we were just curious if you had anything to say on that or what that, or just any stories about Bosnia and, and reading in general. I don't know if we just... Yeah. It's so it's so wildly different than everybody else we've talked to in this industry. Yeah, just your entire background. So, just you yeah. know, what brought you from the military to tech? And um, yeah, so I I joined. Um, I went to West Point, and so I joined the army as a way, almost as a way of paying for university. So you know, I, mm -hmm. I grew up in the states, and um, there it's not it's not very, it's very expensive, <laughs> and so it was kind of declaring my independence, but not also burdening my parents with having to pay for my uni. And yeah, it just, it, I don't know. I just fell in love when that, when I went to West Point, it's like, it looks like Cambridge to me. So, you know, it's like really beautiful. Um, and I, I, I'd say I didn't really know what I was signing up for, but it, 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 it just expanded my horizons in so many ways. I was kind of a small town girl from suburban Boston in the States. And then, you know, for the first time I had to get my passport, you know, that's the joke about Americans. We oh. don't have passports, but you know, my, the first time I got my passport was when I was moving to Germany 
uh, as like a 21 or 22 year old. And then as soon as I moved there, they said, oh, don't unpack your stuff and don't find an apartment because uh, you're, you're, you're getting deployed and we're going to send you to Bosnia. And this was like about a year after they'd signed the Dayton Accord. So it was quite calm and it had been, um, I'd say, you know, divided up into the different sectors. And uh, But yeah, it was um, seven months of living in a tent. So I, I don't camp anymore. Wow. <laughs> and uh, um and it, you know, it's uh, it's just really boring. You know, like when you're when you get deployed, the, you know, the whole thing about the army is, you, you know, you you prepare and train for something you hope that never happens, and so you you know you're you're spending a lot of time waiting on a lot of things to happen, and there's just so much downtime. You don't have television. You don't you know. There's just so much missing from, um, you know. There's no pubs. We weren't allowed to drink <laughs> at all for for that time, and so yeah, it was um. It was, a, of course, you could, I, I remember hearing that the Brits had a place where you could go and drink, but when, oh. I never had the guts to go. I was about to say, all the English people hearing you couldn't drink or like clutching their pearls. Yeah, oh, no, 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 exactly. <laughs> there was apparently a secret space that if you went in and you knew some Brits, you could go and get a drink. That's but so funny. The I was like a, a good little second lieutenant and I was, you know, going to follow the rules. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, so I got really into reading. I read, um, you know, one of the books that I think has been most transformational for me was Personal History by Catherine Graham, who kind of inherited the Washington Post from her husband, uh, who died really suddenly. And um, this idea that a woman can run a company, and uh, it was just like, again, perspective shifting for me, uh, and a really important kind of formational book. But then I just also felt like I had, in the high school, I had uh, you know, skipped every book. I, you know, uh, blagged my way through most of it. It was really terrible. And, and then, so I, I forced myself to also go back through all of the classics. I felt like in my twenties, I basically covered all of like English and American literary history. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. So you, you forced <laughs> yourself. Did you, did you, did you enjoy any of the classics or were you just like, oh, I, I did. have to do this? No, no, I did. I mean, I think okay. that's <laughs> I was like... it was easy. It was easy to do because I finally understood I finally understood books. Like I finally understood right. the value of books and, um, and yeah, I, I guess it was like, you know, I needed to discover it on my own. It wasn't something anyone could kind of push at me. So I think, and that's kind of more how I operate, I suppose. So. No, I, I, I think it comes to everyone at different times. I think I had sort of the opposite where I was reading all these like big chunky books when I was a teenager and they went straight over my head. And I was like, this isn't that good. I don't get what's going on, whatever. And then I read them like five years later and I was like, oh, okay. I just like was a literal teenager and had an unformed frontal lobe. And, yes, you know. exactly. <laughs> All right. So um, our last question, this uh, podcast is sort of geared toward publishing hopefuls who are looking to learn more about publishing, how to get into the space. Um, do you have any advice for people looking to get into publishing or you also come from tech? people who are looking to get into publishing in maybe unorthodox ways, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think I've heard of some interesting um, interesting paths into publishing. So people who can parlay a, a kind of a little bit of editorial experience into actually, you know, helping edit books for, you know, on a freelance basis for authors and then building their own business around that. And And I think that's an interesting path, you know, kind of this whole idea of like, you can do it yourself, you know, have, have faith in your own capability 
and, you know, set yourself up as a freelancer and see how it goes. And, you know, you'll, you'll probably learn. I mean, if you're feeling frustrated because you haven't got that dream, dream job, how do you make the experience that you have in the absence of getting the experience you want? And so it, it's, a, I think that tricky challenge when you're just starting out and there aren't enough jobs, you know, just go and see if you can do it. Um, see if you can, you know, network with authors or, you know, find people to recommend you and you do like one and the, the authors are all connected and then they might recommend you to the next one. And it might take a little bit of time for you to start out and it might feel like a bit precarious, um, but you'll be building experience rather than, you know, just job searching. And I say so thinking about how you can have that balance, I think is, uh, is important. And yeah, I think there's no, I think also think about these experiences that you have, you know, our experience was we were um, you know, dissatisfied consumers. What dissatisfies you in the industry? How do you solve that? What do you want to go and do about it? And and so just thinking a little bit around, you know, shifting your perspective, maybe from I need this job to actually there are a bunch of problems I can solve here. And how could I go and maybe even go get external funding to do it myself? And is there an interesting challenge there? So I'm obviously an entrepreneur, so I'm going to push the kind of more entrepreneurial um, approach than, you know, going and working at a big company. I can, I can assure you <laughs> it's not that glamorous. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting hearing entrepreneurs talk about the industry versus think about thinking about how the industry thinks of itself, because I think it is a very traditional, like people in our, some of our professors will say like, oh, it hasn't changed in a hundred to hundreds of years, right? Since the printing press was invented, it's kind of just been the same gig. Um, definitely more upheaval right now, but I think it's definitely true that at this point, the the gaps in the market and the problems are so glaring that a little bit of uh, entrepreneurial, like here's what's wrong with yeah. this is bit probably helpful. Yeah. Disruption to the industry. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. right. Well, I think that's all we have. Yes. Um, just if there's anything you have coming up that you want to share or. Oh, I wanted to give your, um, your audience a, a, an offer code if they wanted to um, oh. check out ZigZag. So oh, it's, um, so it's zigzag with X's, not Z. So I think there's some there's some brand advice that says you should never do a brand that you have to spell to people. But in this case, it's xigxag.co.uk slash uncover. And uh, your first book will be three ninety nine. So as a little awesome. uh, oh, wow. start you up, uh, and if you want, you can. We just launched gift vouchers, so you can ask. It's on our website. If you want to uh, ask for for any um, audiobook or X book gifts for Christmas, uh, yeah, perfect. Yeah, just in time for Christmas. That's awesome. Oh, amazing. Well, thank okay. you so much for everything. This has been such a great conversation. We just really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and talk yeah, about Yeah, thanks for reaching out. Yeah, no, it's really lovely to meet you. Best of luck uh, in your careers and let me know if I can help with anything along the way. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. And right. Bye. Bye. All right. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Kelly Fairbrother and tune in in two weeks for another great interview with Dan Kieran, co-founder and past CEO of Unbound Publishing. Be sure to leave comments and reviews. And if you have any questions, please feel free to email us at uncoveringpublishing at gmail.com. Thanks so much. Thanks.